the people who are the most well-read don't want to marvel at your GCSE English skills. Hello, listener, and thank you for joining us for episode 98 of Good Copy, Bad Copy, the B2B copywriting podcast. We're really very grateful for your company. And this month, we're going to be talking about how to make your B2B content readable and accessible for the widest possible audience. And we have an in-depth interview with an expert on that very subject, uh, Sarah Winters from Content Design London. My name's David Maguire. I'm creative director at Radix Communications, which is a B2B tech copywriting agency. And I'm delighted to be joined by a familiar guest co-host for this episode. It's the smooth sounds of Radix consultant writer, George Reith. George, welcome. Hi, David. And hi, listener. Thank you both for letting me come back again. It's just always a pleasure to have you here, apart from that you make me sound bad. <laughs> I was just going to say, it sound, you've given me such a warm welcome. I wish I, I got this warm kind of welcome everywhere I went, really. <laughs> I can't Maybe speculate on yeah, why, <laughs> why that might not be, be the case. So, speaking of going places, I think by the... By the time this is uh, broadcast um, or podcasted, the um, Freedom Day will, will have come and gone. Are you are you feeling the freedom yet? Uh, well, David, I'd ask, you know, are any of us ever truly free? <laughs> Even when Freedom Day comes and goes, I'll still be bound by the uh, meat cage that is my body and pinned by the weight of existential dread, so... Okay, so moving swiftly on, uh, um, George, I'm sure you know the drill by now. Please, can you tell the listener how they can get in touch with us? Sure thing. Listener, if you have any comments, questions or suggestions, you can get in touch with us by email. Podcast at radix-communications.com Or on Twitter. R-A-D-I-X-C-O-M, Radix.com Thank you very much. So, David, you've wanted to get this month's guest onto the podcast for quite a while, haven't you? Yeah, that is absolutely true, actually. So, when I saw Sarah Winters speak at the copywriting conference, I mean, it completely changed how I I thought about those conversations that you have with stakeholders about making content clear and readable. I mean, she's genuinely just one of the best speakers I've ever seen. Uh, Sarah's the founder of Content Design London, and she's the author of one of my favourite books, uh, and she was really fundamental in making gov.uk an accessible site. So she knows a thing or two about that awkward chat where you get accused of dumbing things down. So I was obviously really delighted when she agreed to talk about making B2B content clear and accessible. So I started by asking her, why should a B2B marketer care about readability anyway? It's interesting because a lot of people will pull B2B away from any other market and it's starved because there are humans in businesses. There are humans that run businesses. So essentially, readability is about talking to the human. The fact that they represent a business is neither here nor there, really. The way that we take in information and the way that we process it in our brains goes one way. Regardless of your language, regardless of your culture, regardless of where you're sitting, on a neurobiological level, it goes in one way. If you um, have a cognitive challenge or you have a disability, then of course your other senses or the other ways that you take in information will do their funky thing. But essentially, it's still processed the same way. 
unless you've had like a lesion on the brain from when you were born. So I find it really odd that people care about readability, depending on the way that you define it, in their day-to-day lives, but they completely divorce it when it comes to business. Kind of like, in my day-to-day life, I want you to get to the point, I want you to be amusing or engaging or, you, you know, funny, I want you to be tearful, I want you to be whatever, but I want to essentially complete a task. But when I'm at work, I want something completely different. That doesn't happen never happens you are a human and you bring everything with you all the time you do change slightly when you go to work and you will maybe introduce specialist terms or jargon and that's fine there are ways of getting around that so that you're inclusive and specific Um, but readability depends on how you define it and why you don't care about it rather than why you should care about it if you see what I mean yeah so how would you def- are there ways of defining it that, that you think are particularly helpful? For us, we just term everything as accessible and inclusive. Right. We even, a lot of people will talk about plain English, and we tend not to. We changed it a little while ago. We'll now talk about clear English. Because mm. if it's plain, people think boring. And if people think readable, they think boring. And that's not the case at all. It just means that you're being clear. And I think that a lot of people, particularly in a B2B setting, they need to be clear because they're competition for everything, right? If you're not frictionless, if you're not able to get people through a process or um, into your sphere to become your brand champions, whatever it is, if you can't do that in an easy, clear way, your competitors will and you will have lost out. I think one of the things I I, I guess that... that comes into it you know where you talked about the technical specifics and the jargon that people need to use is is that something that that you find in the the clients that you've worked with yeah stupid things nuances like um i'd like a 72 word sentence please with all high punctuation it's like why you know that you're going to dump 90 percent of your audience once you start hitting 14 to 19 words don't you and it's just about why are you losing so many people? That's my kind of question. So, but you could do really easy things with your content to make it open and inclusive. So what sort of things would you suggest? So one is actually to know your user journey. And I don't mean the sales funnel. I mean the user journey. So nobody wakes up in the morning thinking a brand new idea. You've got seven to nine or seven to 12 unconscious thoughts before you can make a conscious decision about anything. That language is coming from somewhere and is it the specialized language or not so by understanding the journey that people go through to get to you and what language they're bringing with them and what preconceived ideas that they have you can actually work out where those specialist terms should be so if you work from a user-centered perspective um you would have, I don't know, social media and uh, mainstream media and all of these things that kind of inform the way that you think about something. And you can use more lay terms there and introduce specialist terms. The way to introduce specialist term is to just introduce it the first time you use it on a page. That's it. That's it. But often people will pull things that should be two or three steps down the line up front. And that's where they lose people. And nobody, by the way, in four years old, 
is using terms like synergy or whatever it is that you're using, do you know what I mean? You can use them, but know where it is in the journey. That's, that's the crux of it. If you have, you're introducing a term, like I say, use it the first time you use it on, on, on the page and work out all the kind of words around it. So you've got context markers throughout a paragraph any paragraph, doesn't matter how big or small, you will have context markers. So your brain is kind of telling you something about the content before it happens. If those are too heavy, you will get people switching off. And again, they're going to go to your competitors. They're not going to stay with you. So you need to work out how much emphasis you want to put on your jargon and on your specialist terms and what it's going to cost you so if you have a 72 word sentence it's loaded with jargon it's loaded with buzzwords you can do eye tracking and you can get eye trackers really cheaply now and watch people skim through the middle of it and get to the end and either bounce out or carry on but where they trust you less because you can test for that as well or that they're disengaging with you so you've really got to have that conversation with stakeholders. I normally term it as, do you want them to read it or do you want them to act on it? Because often those can be two different things. Sure. And then with the reading thing, do you want them to read it or do you want them to engage? Because those are two different things. Mm. And so you have to have that balance because if you get boring, the brain shuts down and then that's that. Because people will say, isn't it, our, our audience are very, very... Are very very smart. They're very very educated. If it doesn't sound like a PhD thesis, no one's going to read it. But it's not true. <laughs> not remotely true. Uh, there was a study. I'm trying to think of it off the top of my head. Um, where uh, somebody was saying the most the most intelligent people on the planet are the most well well read, and the mm. people who are the most well read don't want to marvel at your GCSE English skills. <laughs> true they want to get what you have to say and apply it to their own lives to their own context because they've got a lot of reading to do they've got a lot to get through mm. and it's not to wade through your sentence structure and often readability accessibility usability has nothing to do with intelligence it has more to do with boredom are you boring me because you've got a long sentence, you're not getting to the point fast enough, you are not engaged. I'm not talking about funny cat gifs or whatever, shoving those everywhere, not that. People come with a task, again, knowing your user journey. Mm. Where's the task? Where, where am I able to be amused? Where am I able to be engaged? And where do I want to do a task? And then reflecting that journey back to them, that is the most effective way of getting to people. I've noticed that one of the things that you've, researched is that i wanted to ask about is the uh, the impact of contractions on on readability and accessibility because i think as um copywriters particularly in b2b and you know and people that want to sound want the copy to sound friendly they want it to sound like conversational like you're talking to a human being contractions are a huge go-to it's like yes use them you know but it's it, it's not as simple as that is it there's there's another side to it yeah there is joe schofield did a medium post 
Um, she was working for Co-op or DWP at the time, and uh, they did some testing on contractions. English is a second language, particularly, um, find contractions very difficult. And other people are looking for the word not. So um, when we read, you have three eye fixation zones. And the third one is where your brain says, do I need to read that word or not? Now, the word not could be the only thing that turns that sentence or that paragraph from positive to negative. And when people have that in mind because they are task orientated rather than engagement orientated and they miss it, they could literally read a piece, think it's positive and it won't be, it'll be negative because it's literally hanging off an apostrophe. So you need to be careful. There are ways of getting it. Of course, if you go would not, could not, it has that as a tone. But remember, it's, it's only one contraction into two mm. words. That's it. The rest of your piece can handle it. So if you think that your your entire work is hanging off a contraction, then I would probably look at all the things that are going on on the page. But just be aware that particularly negative contractions can be difficult for um, English as a second language and people with learning disabilities. There's 1.4 million people in this country with a learning disability. They have jobs. They will be on the other end of the business that you are trying to engage with. So just, is it worth it, is the, is the question. And that seems a, a good moment to kind of segue into making things accessible for people with disabilities of um, of one kind or another. I mean, readability and accessibility are quite closely linked on in that sense. I think they should be. If it's not accessible, then it's not usable basically. There's 13.9 million registered disabled people in this country. That's not even including temporary disabilities like, I don't know, migraines, stress, which a lot of people in this country will understand now. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in a B2B context, when people are making, you know, content for B2B marketing, what are the main things they should be thinking of from an accessibility point of view? Um, Probably language first. What language are you using where? Um, uh, sentence structure and length. These are all tiny things that just make such a massive difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is that jargon. It is that jargon. There is a stack of research out there that people can use to kind of bash their stakeholders with. Mm. Um, and even in this country, a B2B example will be the Health Regulatory Authority took the government to court because their website was legally signed off by lawyers. It was 100% legally compliant, but it was confusing because there was too much content on the pages. So a high court judge declared it in favour of the um, defendant, in this case, Richmond Pharmaceutical Company. And so the government had to pay loads of money and loads of charges and all this sort of thing um, because the website was confusing. So a high court judge has set a precedence in this country. You can be legally correct. If you're confusing, you can be taken to court for it. Um, Where can the listener find out more about you, more about the resources that you share? So everything is on Mm contentdesign.london. We have a readability guidelines wiki. It's in a book as well, Uh, but (laughs) it's in a free wiki. 
that you can just go and oh, cool. see. And it's all, all everything that I've talked about has research backing this up. And so when you go into a conversation, you can pretty much stay quiet and say, you see this research, you see this research, you see this research, what do you want to do? Um, so if you have a look at contentdesign.london or we're on Twitter, which is content design LN, um, and we put a lot of our research out there as well. So everything that we say is backed up by usability. You said this was a market that you really wanted to talk to. So what did you really want to say to B2B marketers while you have their ear? Uh, uh, I see you. I know how difficult it can be. We've done it as well. So I know how difficult it can be to explain to stakeholders that they do not need to have all the marketing and all the jargon and put out everything that they've ever thought ever onto the internet. Um, there is research out there and your, your best friend will be a trained user researcher because they can go out and get videos really quickly of people failing and getting bored, which you may not be able to get from your analytics, but you will be not grabbing them to convert. So your best friend will be a user researcher. Oh, thank you so much, Sarah. It's great to finally hear from you on the podcast and so much practical advice for our listener. George, what stood out there for you? So what stood out for me is that I think Sarah has somehow dived into my brain or at least my copy and is personally calling me out for my use of contractions. <laughs> but, but in all seriousness, no, a lot of really uh, interesting points here of things that I sort of, I think, take for granted sometimes, maybe just mm-hmm. do by default. And suddenly listening to that, I'm now starting to interrogate that a little bit more and thinking, well... Because to me, I'm just like, yeah, contractions all the time. Obviously, it makes things sound more casual. It's like a free way to kind of get mm-hmm. a bit more flow in, in, in your copy. Um, and especially when you're writing about something quite dense and technical and abstract and complicated, you know, having that kind of free, easy way in the copy to make things seem a little smoother, a little easier to read to, mm. to a native English speaker, of course. That's, you know, the default for me. But obviously, I, you know, foolishly not really considered how it might read to somebody who, who's doesn't have English as their native language and might be using it as a second language and therefore the contractions suddenly reduce readability so that was an interesting one for me um yeah I mean because you've kind of you've got the whole thing with you know English as a second language or you've got where they're reading on say a mobile device which adds a whole bunch of cognitive load anyway like I kind of I, I get it um but still at the same time you know from a voice and tone point of view if you don't use contractions at least some of the time you, your brand can sound like a pompous ass, so I, I think I think there's a balance. Our colleague John actually wrote a really good blog post about this. Like he um, had a dive into the the research, and I think you know the bit that that Sarah was saying about the negative contractions in particular. I think those are the ones that are particularly important. I think some kind of you know simple positive contractions are. Um, you know, I, th- I, th- I think fine, it, you know, but then there are ones that, that, that are either excessively complicated or they're negative. You know, if you find yourself writing shouldn't have or something like that, then maybe think twi- twice about it. But I, th- I, I, I think there's a balance. I think maybe, you know, some contraction use is okay. I must say, are you one for being very standard with within the client's brand you know copy about 
which words you will contract and which words you won't. Because I, I, I tend to feel like, again, in, in the spirit of writing as you'd speak, I wouldn't always contract or not contract certain words. And so I'm, in, I'm actually deliberately inconsistent about it in the content that I write. But I don't know if that would just really wind people up. Yeah, it's interesting that one, actually, because I, I think I'm like alarmingly consistent at just contracting absolutely any word where it's appropriate and probably somewhere it's inappropriate. Just alarmingly <laughs> consistent in general. <laughs> if you say so. But uh, I, I'm, I'm a big contractioner. I don't know if that's a term. I'm going to make it a term. You are now. Uh, yeah, it's a term now. Um, so, yeah, but this is really interesting, the idea that some, some stuff is kind of more adds more cognitive load when it's contracted than others. So the negative mm. element is a really valuable point that Sarah puts out there, especially, like she said, where that's the only thing that signifies you're talking about a negative is the contraction that then is possibly easy to miss if you're skimming through through a document. So I guess, yeah, that's... Yeah, I guess there, there must be a line there, right, of sort of where it seems inconsistent versus where actually you're doing the reader a favour. And I think finding that line is going to be an interesting one. And I guess it will depend massively on what you're writing, I, I suppose. Like if it's, you know, quite a, a short, to the point, important message about what a reader should do about something, like it's a practical guide, maybe you don't want to contract as much. But if it's a much longer piece, maybe contractions would be okay because you've got more text to kind of work around and show where you're switching to a negative. Although, I'm about to contradict myself straight away, maybe a longer piece you can get away with less contractions because it's such a long piece there's already a lot of cognitive load associated with it. Does that make sense? I think some of... Yeah, I think so. I think some of it's about where you are in the um, in the document and what you're trying to do. I think sometimes you could be just at a part of the document where you want to slow things down and be really serious you know like so sometimes in an email you know you, you know you might want to say oh we won't you know we won't bother with so and so or in another sense you might say we will not do this you know i just um, wanted to say about how refreshing it was to hear somebody talking about b2b content and saying hey a little bit of jargon's fine and that's nice because i think jargon is one of these like Whenever I like uh, attend a copywriting conference, there's always some sort of talk where somebody just goes like, "Jargon's the worst thing. You've got to get rid of all of it." That's the main sort of culprit of like overly pompous, complex writing in B two B. And I sort of get where they're coming from. And obviously, some jargon is less helpful than others. But you know, yeah, it's nice to hear somebody who really knows what they're talking about saying, "Hey, you know, jargon is how people understand their industry, and sometimes it's fine, assuming you can get the rest of the sentence to be pretty straightforward. Having specific terms that apply to that industry is." Well, it's, it's it's important and useful. Those terms do mean something to that audience. You'd be silly not to use them. Yeah, it's all about speaking the language, isn't it? It's all about speaking their la- the language that they actually use. And I think that the the issue that we have, particularly in B two B writing and B two B tech writing, is that people have come to I want to, don't want to say misunderstand what jargon means, but certainly the meaning of the word jargon has expanded the accepted meaning so strictly speaking it is that the terminology of your industry so we're both copywriters i can talk about an oxford comma and you'll know what an oxford comma is now that has kind of expanded to when people talk about jargon to include 
all of the kind of business bullshit terms that go in, you know, oh, it, oh, it's, you know, innovative solutioneering. Synergistic. And, 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 and that's pretty old synergistic. school, though. I don't think that's yeah, or, been used actually by people for, like, what, 15 years at least? That used to be, like, the standard, like, okay, here's some, you know, business BS right here, but... Mm. Yeah, let's let's you know let's um, let's leverage our solutions, you know, um, and all, all of that stuff. But um, you know, but and I, but I think that because that there's still there's a certain element of technical specificity, which is hard for me to say on, on a <laughs> Friday. Um, but um, the you know the, the, if you think about it. The the one that I like to do is to think about the um, like the water cooler or the break room where your audience works. And if you think about you know two engineers or or two technical people, two experts, you know they're not going to say, you know, the big machine's broken again. The red light is flashing. Can it's hurty? Can someone make it less sad? You know, can they come make it all better? You know, they're going to talk about the specifics. You know, but neither are they going to say. You know, ah, the flugel binder is operating at suboptimal efficiency once again. This is a most uh, inconvenient turn of events. <laughs> we should arrange for a, a maintenance solution to leverage his expertise forthwith. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I've never written about a flugel binder before, but I really want to now. It sounds quite quite exciting. <laughs> I'm gonna have to invent it mm. so that you can. Um, do you, see, do you see what I mean? There's a bit in between where we use technical mm. specifics, but in a short, easy to understand sentences, because that's how they'll act. That's what, when you talk about talking their language in a B2B tech context, that's what you mm. talk about, right? Technical specifics, but presented in a simple yeah. way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as well, if you try too hard to simplify something and and avoid those terms that, that people are actually using, I think it just sounds weird. You know what I mean? Like, an engineer would look at it and be like, why aren't you talking about these things? This is like, you know, <laughs> they'd just be like, what are you talking about? You're not using any of the terms I would expect to see in a document about, I don't know, whatever it would be, DevOps or what have you. It's just, uh, yeah. I don't, know. I don't think there's any point avoiding it for the sake of it, right? It's all about the context. It's all about the, the, the yeah, audience exactly. and, and speaking their authentic language, I, I, I think. But, I mean... A lot of that, where you're talking with jargon, a lot of complexity gets dragged in. And it's a while ago now, but you did kind of a, a lot of sort of look into readability and things for us. And you wrote that mm. um, that fabulous blog that, that kind of has sections at different Flesh Kincaid grade levels and um, that kind of thing. I mean, do you find yourself ever kind of looking to algorithms and things just to kind of give you a a steer if your content is in the right kind of area readability wise yeah i do try to i think um yeah i i do but in a quite a gentle way so often i mean you know i've been doing this a fair few years now so i'm more often than not on a sort of default job i'll kind of just assume the stuff i write is at least mostly readable like you'd like to think after eight years i can at least do that right but if there's sort of special requirements, so obviously if I'm writing something that's definitely going to be translated into other languages, then I suddenly think, okay, well, the burden of readability here is going to be greater because, you know, there's a lot of stuff that will translate quite poorly or make the translator's job hell on earth, and I don't want to do that to them. So I'll run stuff through that just to, just to make sure I haven't slipped in anything that's going to really uh, throw a spanner in the works. Um, 
I, I do find them useful as well in general, just every now and then, just to make sure things are on track. But I think I get a bit frustrated sometimes with how they're used in other organisations. So I've definitely had a few clients before that have said, right, this piece you're writing, it's got to hit nine on the Flesh Kincaid grade. Anything above a nine, we won't accept. And, you know, I'm looking at how that algorithm works and I'm like, yeah, but, you know, you have, the, like, the whole blog is about, uh, God, I don't know, you know, DevOps solutions. And the single phrase, DevOps solutions, spikes that <laughs> algorithm by, like, a point in whatever sentence it's in. I mean, that's a bad example. But, you know, you get these terms that are, like, quite long, quite complicated terms by their very nature. You can't, like, not use them because that's what the blog's about. And you're sat there arguing with somebody like, oh, I know you said you needed a nine, but I've got, got it down to 9.2. Is that okay? And as long as people are willing to flex a little bit there, I think it's fine to ask a writer to do that sort of thing. But I've had some awkward conversations where like, no, no, it's got to be below nine. It has to be. And I'm sat there like, I don't think it's possible when you're talking about server virtualization. Mm. <laughs> like, there's too many <laughs> syllables in that word. I cannot get this down further. Um, and just, I appreciate I've just gone for ages about this. I, I have way more thoughts about this topic than I thought I did, David. You've awakened something within me. Um, <laughs> what, one more thing I found as well is that um, I've noticed recently, I've had quite a few clients ask, ask me to run stuff through the Hemingway app. Oh, yeah. And um, I think the thing that I find interesting about that is I did a lot of stuff through the Flesh Kincaid grade score. And I quite like that as a kind of readability metric to aim for because it's very... Uh, transparent what it's calculating like you can look it up it's a known thing online and yeah. it's just sort of the amount of words in a sentence and the it's amount words of words syllable. and syllables exactly yeah. so that's great because i can look at it and if my score is crazy high i know what to do to fix that i need to go back and reduce the amount of words reduce the amount of syllables in the words and i'll start getting somewhere some of these algorithms, though, like the Hemingway app, it didn't feel quite as obvious or transparent to me. Now, I haven't done a lot of work in it. Maybe there is a really obvious algorithm that I just don't know about yet. But it's when I don't know what it's looking for. I'm there like, well, what, how do I start reducing this number? <laughs> what do I need yeah. to do to make this more readable according to this specific app? So I think that's a bit of a danger there. I prefer something that's less of a black box. Um, but there we are. And you're a kind of expert on Grammarly at Radix as, as well. Um, I wouldn't call myself an expert. I think I'm just by default the guy that was left holding the bag when people went, right, someone needs to train everyone on Grammarly and everyone ran away and it was just me <laughs> left there like, yeah. As the most technical person in the organisation, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but but Grammarly, you've got different, like, different flavour. It's like it asks you to suggest, select which kind of flavour of copy you would like. Yeah, so I'm quite impressed with Grammarly on that front, actually, because I hadn't used it in re- like for, for a while, and you know, I remember seeing early reviews of it. it. It sounded like it was all quite general, uh, but seeing them, they've now implemented these things. I don't know how long this has been in there for, but now I've started using it again. You know, you have these radio buttons, so you can dial in, oh, how technical is the person you're writing for, that kind of thing. Is this for business or you know, consumer stuff. That's really cool to be able to narrow that down. But again, I do sort of feel sometimes it's very simple to use, which is great. But as a result, they don't give you a huge amount of info on what these different things are, right? So I've set mine to obviously be for a business context of writing. And then I've set it to be for professionals. But I could, I could set it to be for academic people. And I'm like, where, <laughs> you know, what would it pick up for academic people that it won't pick up for professional people? <laughs> where, where's the line there for Grammarly? Now, I'm sure there's all sorts of complex rules it has in place to make a distinct uh, sort of way of writing for both of those people and, and give you different suggestions. Um, I haven't played around with it enough yet, but I would love just to have a list of things that I could look at on Grammarly's website or a wiki somewhere or something so I know what kind of things it's going to be looking out for. Because who knows, maybe academic would be more suitable for some jobs I write. I don't know yet. 
I can't find out unless I start playing around with it. So maybe that'll be homework for me. I don't know. <laughs> Sarah also talked a bit about you know making content accessible as as, as well as uh, readable to make sure that people with uh, you know different sort of uh, abilities and um, you know visual impairments and things can can access your content. Are we seeing our clients doing anything new or different or giving us anything kind of standard in the style guide and things? I mean, some things we just, you know, have been left, I think, in some cases to work out for ourselves as writers. Mm. Yeah, I mean, do you know what? I still feel that's kind of what's happening. I mean, you know, I would really love to have been able to give you a great answer here of like, yeah, look at all these clients that are doing these amazing things, really putting it front and centre. I'm not quite seeing that myself just yet. I may have been unlucky. Or maybe I just haven't asked enough questions for them to talk to me about accessibility thoughts they've been having in their content. Um, But, you know, I know there are some specific elements of copy, though, that a lot of people have been talking about industry-wide for a while. I know CTAs have kind of been the big one for a while, particularly because I think (laughs) there seemed to be an era uh, about five or six years ago where every CTA button was like, get it now or learn more or something mm-hmm. like quite high level and vague. And then I feel like we had a bit of a turning point where a lot of people picked up that this is like awful for screen readers. Yeah. They're like, get more info on what, get what now. Mm-hmm. And so you're seeing a lot more now sort of specific CTA buttons text that sort of says, you know, download the ebook, get the name of the report, whatever mm-hmm. it will be in that box. So I, I'm sort of seeing small nudges towards accessibility like that. Um, but for me, it tends to come from like other writers rather than clients pushing it from the top down, which is fine, I think. Uh, but it's a shame. I think if more clients started thinking about it and telling their contractors, their writers, their employees to, to push for these things, we might see change happen faster. So I'd, I'd love for that to happen. Yeah, and it might be something that, that actually we need to get a style guide together and, and push on it because it's not right that people just can't access your stuff. I mean, from a yeah. moral so and a business point of view. Sorry. Mm. Yeah, sorry, no, I didn't interrupt you. I was just going to say the other thing that Sarah mentioned that's really important is that, like, obviously accessibility is mega important for people who, you know, can't listen to things because of a hearing impairment or what have you. But also just in terms of a usability thing, for somebody who can hear, it's, it's a great thing too, right? Because, you know, if you're on a crowded bus and you haven't got any headphones, brilliant. I mean, you know, I used to have that thing... Ads are getting smarter about this now, but surely you had it where you're scrolling through Facebook or Reddit or what have you, and you see an ad pop up, and it's got audio and no subtitles. And I might actually be quite interested in what this ad is promoting, but the moment there's no audio, I'm like, I'm sat on a bus. I'm not going to turn on audio for an ad and blast out on my speakers on this bus, right? No chance. I'm skipping that. But if you put subtitles, I might look along and go like, oh, look, this this man's waiting for a call from someone, but his phone's waterproof, so it doesn't matter. He dropped it in a puddle. And I might go, oh, that's a nice phone. But no subtitles, no chance. I'm not buying your phone. I'm chuckling about this elaborate bus story when actually you're talking about browsing Facebook in the office, aren't you? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. to be clear, I, I haven't ridden a bus since the beginning of the pandemic. So, yeah, I tried to make myself sound really down to earth there. Like, yeah, yeah, I get on the bus too, you know. I do the public transport. No, I've just been a hermit for ages. So no bus and no advert about people dropping phones in puddles. But you could see it happening, right? That wasn't a terrible example. <laughs> could no, be so... So I think that, you know, one of the things that we said is that it's good to have guidelines and to get some stuff in place. And actually, we've got an opportunity for um, for some people to win some, some guidelines. So, so let's hand some out, shall we? 
So, David, are you telling me we have honest-to-God prizes to hand out this month? Yeah, unbelievably, that is, that is true. Uh, after we finished recording, Sarah generously offered us three prize bundles to give away. Each of them comprises the Content Design London Readability Guidelines and a copy of Sarah's book, Content Design, which I highly recommend. Um, so... I took to social media and and asked the audience, I I said, what is your best tip for making B2B content readable and accessible? And we picked out three favourites and we'll send each of you a a pack. (laughs) How is that? Do you you want to know what they are? He said, rustling his papers. Yes, I do. (laughs) Rustle the papers some more, please. (laughs) Okay, he said here. He said, having destroyed some trees. Um... Okay, so we had some great responses, uh, and the ones that, that that we picked as our favourites are in no particular order. Uh, Livy Cracknell, who's a digital content strategist um, at uh, Accenture Interactive, uh, responded to us on, on LinkedIn. Uh, she said, I would approach it from a strategic point of view to ensure consistency and longevity. So first, establish the guidelines the content must meet to be deemed clear and accessible, and when does it fall short? Group these into categories. Translate this into a framework or a scorecard or a checklist that could be used to govern the content creation process. Run all the content through this framework during the production cycle. Jennifer Law, who's a digital marketing manager at the Institution of Engineering and Technology, uh, responded on the B2B marketing propolis hive for content and brand strategy. Uh, And she said, some of the things we do within my team are, there's a bunch of these, but they're all good. Uh, I said that, she didn't. Sorry. (laughs) Attend accessibility forums held with various user groups in our organisation to understand barriers and then take these learnings back to see how we can apply them to our content. Number two, my team holds monthly accessibility meetings to agree on outcomes we are trying to achieve to improve accessibility within our remit. We look at things like images, documents, page content, etc. and choose which ones to tackle next. Number three, we create short guides and lunch and learns to educate stakeholders and business units involved in content creation and to educate the agencies we use on our requirements. Number four, we regularly take time and read up on accessibility to understand more about this topic and discuss our meetings and agree on the next steps. Number five, we use SEMrush and Site Improve to run audits on our content. If we don't own the content, we talk to the business owners about our findings and discuss potential changes we could make. And number six, we regularly conduct SEO audits to understand questions and the language people use to make sure that our content is readable and resonates with the needs of our audiences. P.S. We have also recently completed an accessibility audit on some of our websites and we are about to do the same on some of our downloadable content to understand how accessible they are. Wow, there's a whole load there from uh, from Jennifer who has more than earned a prize bundle, I think. Um, and uh, but you, we didn't just need you know reams and uh, and reams of suggestions. Uh, we also on LinkedIn had a response uh, from Chomparani Ali, who's a content specialist uh, in Germany. Um, I think she's in Germany. Um, she says. Clearly structure content with subheadings and bullet points. A lot of B2B blog posts ramble on with long sentences and paragraphs. 
Amen to that. I was going to say, we've all seen that. <laughs> Fair play. Oh, yeah, sure. a wall of practical, usable advice. And I think that they've all you know, earned themselves a prize bundles. So we'll be in touch to uh, get your addresses and send those over to you. Well done to you. And thanks to everyone else who, uh, who took the time to engage and send tips. Obviously, we can't read all of them. Okay, well, now it's time for our copywriting tip of the month. And this time, it's from Radix consultant writer and international man of mystery, Kieran Haynes. Copywriting tip of the month! Hi, I'm Kieran. I'm a consultant writer at Radix. My favourite copywriting tip is don't start writing before you're ready. When I first began working as a copywriter, I can't have spent more than 20% of my time planning what I was going to write. I would rush to get some words on the page to protect me against the ever-approaching deadline. Then I'd edit, I'd rethink, I'd freak out, I'd unpick and I would restructure. It wasn't a fun or effective way to work. Today I probably spend the majority of my time planning. I set out the narrative flow I know what all my references and proof points are and where I'm going to use them. I trust in my writing process even as the clock is ticking down. And my work is much better as a result. Copywriting tip of the month! He does sound like an international man of mystery, doesn't he? (laughs) In that piece. If anyone in this business was going to turn out to actually be like a, a spy or an assassin that I never knew about, I think it would be Kieran. Don't tell him I said that. I don't want him to get too big for his boots. But I could just see him just going, yeah, I'm just, I'm just going to Switzerland for a week. And I would just be like, I know what you're doing. You're not going to ski. See, I don't know. I think that Kieran would be too obvious. <laughs> I thought you were going to compliment him and say, like, he'd be too nice or something. But no, too obvious. <laughs> He's yeah. too cool. Yeah, maybe. He's too cool. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, as ever, uh, Kieran making... The rest of us look bad with his, you know, with his sheer thought process and and, and discipline there. <laughs> do, you, do you agree with him, George? Well, you know, we were talking about this just earlier, weren't we, Dave? Oh, I, I asked I of, yeah, yeah, yes. you really <laughs> cut to the heart with that question. I mean, you know, I uh, I have an immense amount of respect for Kieran because I see him as like my polar opposite in how he approaches work. You know, I, I feel I'm quite workmanlike when it comes to approaching coffee, but Kieran is ever the artiste. He is a man who accepts nothing less than perfection, and his planning process is in and of itself a work of art, I think. He really commits to it, and it, it produces really great content. So I can't argue with the results. Also, unfortunately, it couldn't be me. I just drive straight in and get going and pick it apart like a sculpture. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm afraid that is all we have time for this month. Um, listener, join us again next time when we'll be talking to Paul Cash about emotion in B2B. In the meantime, George, would you thank our contributors and remind the listener where they can get in touch, please? Sure thing. So thanks again to Sarah Winters for such an informative discussion. Thanks to Kieran for his copywriting tip and continuing to make me look bad. And thanks and congratulations to our three prize winners. But most importantly, thank you, listener, for your company. And please don't forget, if you'd like to contact the show, you can do so on email. Podcast at radix-communications.com Or Twitter. At radix.com That's R-A-D-I-X-C-O-M. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It would be great. And thank you, George, for co-hosting. Have you enjoyed it? I always enjoy it, David. It's always a pleasure.
<laughs> you never look like you're enjoying I'm it. one of these people. I'm cursed where everything I say sounds uh, sarcastic, and it, it gets me in a lot of trouble. You know, I'm talking to one of the guys in the office, and I go, yeah, that's it's a really good piece of work, I guess. And somehow they like think I'm you know, making fun of them. I'm not. I, I genuinely mean it. <laughs> I'm one of the few people that's old enough to remember that guy on the Mary Whitehouse experience, but you know, none of the none of the audience, none of the listeners, none of our colleagues will know who that is. So I, I will move on. Uh, <laughs> until next time, listener, remember, nobody will ever complain that you made something too easy to understand. Well, except for that one stakeholder. You know the one. Sorry. Goodbye. Goodbye.